Well, we're, uh, we're continuing our study on the book of Acts, which is uh, very exciting. And today we're going to be talking about how Jesus changes the world. Uh, and, and to start that off, on May 5th, 1961, this guy, Alan Shepard, uh, became the first American to enter space. Uh, not the first man, but uh, just the first American. Uh, there were some dogs, uh, some American dogs, some Russian dogs, some Russian monkeys uh, that all went into space, and, and a Russian man also went into space before Alan Shepard. But he accomplished this task after two and a half years of being part of the most elite group of test pilots that spanned all of the different uh, armed forces departments. They gathered together. They went through all of these grueling tests he had to move his whole family, his whole life uh, into Houston. Uh, the, the, around him were engineers who utilized millions and millions of dollars at the time uh, the, of rocket engineering, brain you know, excellence, uh, to try to put someone in. The, it's kind of crazy. In 1961, we just like did that, uh, when today you know, it takes a billionaire that ships little things everywhere to go into space. Uh, that's Jeff Bezos. Like, that's, yeah. But then we're like, it took a whole country to do this whole thing uh, with computers uh, not like ours. And Alan Shepard was just this phenomenal person who was driven by this passion and love for space uh, and to just kind of feel the power beneath him. On the launch date, he famously told uh, ground control, you know, let's light this candle, which I think is just so... Uh, epitomizes 1961 masculinity, you know? Uh, I'm a guy who takes three days just to get, like, enough unction to get on a Southwest flight, you know? Like, just so it takes that much energy for me three days to be like, oh, I don't want to stand in line with these other people and then get on this metal death trap. But he's on top of this rocket. He's like, light, let's light this candle. Uh, he goes up into space. He comes back down. Uh, there's parades. He meets the president. Uh, he publicly shares about these amazing views of Earth and how it was all worthwhile, and it completely changed his perspective on everything. Uh, it was only later that the reality kind of came up that, that he was, uh, as he was launched into space, the, the shade that protects the astronauts from becoming blind as they go up into the atmosphere uh, got stuck. And so while he was in space, the whole flight only took 15 minutes, and like half of that, he was actually up there kissing space. Uh, what he saw was not this big, beautiful world, but really just this gray, blurry thing. And all in all, from the moment he said, let's light this candle, until he was splashing into the Atlantic Ocean, all he really experienced was like a bunch of shaking and vibrations and blurriness. But that was, he devoted his entire life to that. It was his purpose, it was his hunger, it was his life. Like he accomplished, like it was his sole mission. He channeled every fiber of his being into accomplishing a fleeting, gray, blurry uh, 15 minutes of excitement. I bring up that story because I wonder if we are giving our lives, every fiber of our being, uh, to a purpose that truly matters. Uh, to a purpose that's truly lasting, that's eternal, that isn't fading uh, and momentary. I think it's pretty phenomenal. If you go back 40 years, everybody knows who Alan Shepard is. Now, like, unless you watch that Disney Plus show about the right stuff, like, you don't know, people don't know who this person is. When you ask who's the first person in space, most people now say Neil Armstrong. 
who walked on moon for the, like, that's the kind of fleeting. Like, when he, was di- when he died, he was known for those 15 minutes, uh, but now, like, people don't even recognize him at all. And so I wonder, are we giving our lives uh, to some sort of fleeting 15 minutes of blurry, fading glory? Or are we giving ourselves to the greatest thing that life has to offer? Uh, the Apostle Paul, I promise we'll talk about Acts, but the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, he tells us exactly what Christianity has to offer in terms of purpose. Uh, he says this, he says, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died, uh, and he died for all. And those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Uh, This passage speaks uh, firstly to just like Jesus's purpose, that there was one who died for all. Uh, God's love compelled uh, Jesus to enter into this world, a world of chaos, of sin, of brokenness, of abuse, of evil, of destruction. The love of God compelled him to enter into that, uh, this distant world, this confused world, that it might have abundant life. Uh, Not only did Jesus come and speak of a better way, a more positive thing, or something like that, but he actually pushed against evil, daily life, reversing curses, reversing sickness, all of those things. And not only did he do those things, speak a better way and do some good stuff, he died to redeem every broken, ill thing in this world. Every sad thing he died for. Every wicked thing he died for. Every sin that entangles us, he died for. That's what Paul's saying when he says, you know, God's love compels us because one died for all and therefore all died. But that's also not the end. This is so great. Uh, It's in Jesus and his power to conquer death that he doesn't just, you know, take care of the bad, sad things. He restores abundant, beautiful life, a life unhindered, a life with God, living in the care and protection that he provides. It's a guaranteed, abundant life with God through that Easter morning resurrection. Uh, And this is what's great, that Jesus isn't about doing it for a few like these 12 guys from a long, long time ago, uh, he was setting his sights on the whole. That for the love of the world, that's his purpose. His mission is for all to be brought close into that abundant life, for all to be brought into joy and to hope and faith, just as we were always intended to live. And Paul says here that they're, they're compelled to live this life because of that love, but also because they've been convinced that that is the true story of the whole world. They've been convinced. And this world isn't just to kind of like know some stuff and like, oh, I kind of think I have this hunch, you know, like I'm going to play these people in my fantasy football list or whatever. No, it's like this deep conviction, this drive, this inner core that they believe with everything that they are, one died for all and one was raised for all. And so if you are convinced of these truths, that means that someone interrupted your life long ago, that means that they loved you, they told you these truths, and you were convinced of them and you believed them. And in believing and in walking with Jesus, you've entered into his purpose that is phenomenal. That his mission is not just a mission in your life, it is the vision of your life. 
Uh, his kingdom is your life. Like, that's what it means to, like, walk in resurrection. His uh, restoring life is your life. Your whole fiber, all of your being, all of the decisions about where to move and how to vacation and all of these things now get placed underneath this powerful kingdom of God, and that's what you pursue. Like, that's what it means to be convinced and come to belief. And so the book of Acts uh, has this recurring phrase that really captures uh, a people who are committed to the mission and the purpose of the gospel. Uh, Luke simply says, he says it five times throughout the book of Acts, he says, and they went about spreading the good news. It comes around like every so often, and it's, it, it kind of bridges two stories often, or some sort of new breaking in of the gospel and the kingdom in some other place. And it's really a demonstration of a people who have come to believe that the purpose of God is their purpose and that all other things are aligned underneath that kingdom. And so today we're going to look at the, the church in Antioch. It's in Luke chapter 11, and we're also going to read part of chapter 13. And we're going to learn how we might live out the kingdom as the vision for our lives. Uh, this is uh, God's word from Acts chapter 11, verse 19. It says this, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. But some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he arrived, he saw what the grace of God had done, and he was glad, and he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. A great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarshish to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them was named Agabus, and he stood up through the Spirit, predicted what a, that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. And the disciples of uh, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. And they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. And then this is from Acts 13. It says, Now the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who, was, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. And so, after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. This is God's word. Uh, this is an important moment because the church exists and is born outside of Jerusalem. And for the first time ever, uh, it's, it exists even outside of Judaism, like that there's a church that's not even distinctly Jewish. Uh, this was the city of Antioch. It was this big Greek metropolis. And it says here that they, they, for the first time, they were speaking the good news about Jesus to Greek people. 
And like when you hear that, you might have images of 300, you know, like well-built, six-packed Greek Spartan men, right? Uh, you might have, uh, you know, slightly less fit uh, image of the movie Troy and Brad Pitt and, you know, others like him. And you're like, oh, that's, that's the Greek people that he's talking about. Or maybe you're just like much more modern. You're like, right, the movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, those people, that's what they're sharing with. The reality is, is by Greek, it's talking about this cultural uh, group of people that's been influenced by a frame of mind of the Greeks who had conquered much of the world for a very long period of time. Uh, They captured this group of people that had the same sense of fashion, of culture, uh, clothing, language, the whole thing. But it was people from all over the world, from all sorts of different people groups who just kind of identified with what we'd call like Hellenistic or Greek people. Uh, the contemporary example would be the British people. Uh, that's kind of, you know, the queen died, the British people are mourning, right? Uh, the British people comprises of Jamaicans, South Africans, Indians, Australians, Hong Kongers, like a whole group of people, right, that are the British people. And they have a common identity. Uh, a lot of them have this common identity where they're like, well, we were conquered by the British people. And then what happened too is they were joined into a particular story a particular language and customs. So much so that if you traveled, and you know, I, I've been able to travel, if you travel to Sydney or Hong Kong or London or Kingston, you would find in those cities a lot of commonality. Not just that they have the Union Jack and their flag, but you would find tons of common threads of how people think about the world, how they talk, how they live their life. And that was to be the British people. You would also see that there's a whole bunch of diversity and differences, but there's this common story and way of thinking that really binds them all together. Uh, That is what it meant. uh, That's the modern version of the Hellenistic people in the ancient world. Ethnically diverse, culturally diverse, from all sorts of different lands and territories, held together by a common language and story. Uh, and that's what was happening. Here in this city, there's this cosmopolitan city. Uh, it's on the edge of the desert and the like non-desert, uh, but less deserty and more deserty is really what it is. But this city of Antioch was important because it connected the world. The east and the west, the north and the south, it was right there. And it was this, you know, bustling place of people from all over, but they were all kind of identified in the same way. Uh, Within that city, there was a small pocket of people that were Jewish. Uh, They were hoping for a Messiah, the Savior, who would come and rescue them as a people, bind them together, build a new kingdom in Israel. Like that, there were those, you know, kind of exiles out there, a diaspora of, of Jewish people hoping for that, who had kind of settled for just kind of old traditional religious practices that helped them understand their identity or their roots. Uh, And then there was a big group of people called pagans who just sought different things over and over again. Uh, At that time in the ancient world and this part of the world, uh, there were a lot of people that were just hoping for someone to come and rescue and save and and be wise and be someone that you could align your whole life with. And then uh, after aligning your whole life with them, you know, you would reap a bunch of benefits. And what this group of people did, the majority of the Greek world, is they would go from one cult or one way of thinking to the next, hoping to find the one thing that's going to make them feel okay and kind of make them have, you know, the flourishing life that they always dreamed of. 
And that was the way of this city until a group of people showed up uh, who had heard the gospel, who had been scattered out of the city of Jerusalem, like we talked about last time, who experienced their homes being taken away and all of these things. These people, convinced and convicted of the gospel, came to the city as refugees, and they began to proclaim the gospel to everybody. Uh, there were people, uh, some of the people were from Cyprus, this tiny Greek island, essentially, uh, this port between places that helped the Greeks kind of conquer everything. Uh, Those people like Barnabas, he was from Cyprus. Uh, then there were Cyrenes. Uh, these are the most famous Cyrene in the Bible is Simus, Simon of Cyrene, who was the man who carried Jesus's cross for him. You know that story that Jesus is walking, he's holding up uh, their processional to kill him, and so he can't carry the rock or the cross after being tortured throughout the night. And so they pull this guy from the side. His name is Simon, and he's from Cyrene, uh, which is this Greek settlement uh, in a place of the world that we would now call Libya. Uh, he was an African man who was in the city of Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, and he carried the cross. Just the, I just find this fun and fascinating. Jordan does too. Uh, Simon of Cyrene is one of the prominent witnesses, first century witnesses of the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, he had two sons. They became prominent members of the church in Jerusalem and in Antioch, uh, so much so that like, even hundreds of years afterwards, people would go to that family, the family of Simon and Cyrene, and ask, hey, like, did this really happen? And they would say, yes, Jesus really did rise from the dead. Like, that's, that's who they were, those kind of key witnesses, uh, northern Africans who had moved over and uh, began proclaiming the gospel. And so we see these two groups of people come into the city, and they start sharing the gospel uh, with those people. And the non-Jewish people, the Greeks, take hold of this message almost instantly of this is the thing we have always waited for. This is the message we've longed for. Large group of people believe, they yield their life and their allegiance to Jesus. Uh, not only that, but this church ended up reaching and being part of reaching the whole known world. Uh, you can trace the roots of the gospel uh, into Africa, into West Africa, uh, into the East, even into Asia, uh, Persia, and India. You can trace it all the way to Rome through this little church. Uh, more so than Jerusalem. It's pretty amazing. And there's three things that I think we see in the passages that I read that allow them to be this kind of church that reaches uh, so much, uh, that, that crosses cultural boundaries, that does all of these things. There's three things. Uh, the first one is they spoke up. They talked about Jesus. Uh, as they were rubbing shoulders with Jews and Gentiles and barbarians and Greeks, uh, they were on that, you know, the edge of the desert. They were so compelled by the love of God and the conviction that all of this is true, they figured out how to make the message of the gospel true to a diverse group of people, and they talked about it all the time. Uh, this is a first ever distinction. Clearly that the whole group of people just could not stop talking about Jesus. Uh, regardless of what they looked like, regardless of their economic status, uh, they talked about this mysterious person, Christos, which is this Greek word for Messiah. Uh, and what would happen is, uh, this is just sort of an, uh, an example of how they came up with this, but 
you know, they would be talking about Jesus so much, someone from Antioch would be like, who are those people over there that just keep talking and talking? And another person would say, oh, those are the people who always talk about Christos. They are the Christ people. They're the Christians. And that's what happens in Antioch. That's the first time people are called Christians. But the labeling of them uh, that way was because of what they talked about. And this was a common way of labeling people in the ancient world. Those people who talked about the practices and the philosophies and the rule of Herod were called Herodians. I mean, it was really basic. It's like, that's all you talk about. You're a Herodian. Because they assume that whatever it is you're talking about, it's what matters the most to you, and it must be core to who you are. Like, because you're talking about it all the time. The same is true today. If you keep talking about Donald Trump, like you're a Trumper, right? Like you have a special hat and everything, but it's like, oh, I'm going to label you by what you talk about. Or, you know, less controversially, uh, those people who really love Beyonce and talk about Beyonce all the time are people called the beehive, right? Is that accurate? Yeah, thanks. Trips won. <laughs> Now, this is what's fascinating. Like, we do the same thing that they did before. It's like that you are, you must be, something deep within you is coming out over and over again, and that's who you are. Now, I think the, the convicting thing to process is, what is it that you talk about? When things are hard and challenging, and when you're looking at the world, and when you're processing with coworkers, what is it that you talk about? What's coming out of your lips? What, and that will let you know what you love. That'll let you know what you find your hope in. That'll let you know what you find your deepest longings and faith in. It's the things you're talking about. This use of the term Christians was not a, a label given to a group of people that had a bullet, proof, or a bullet point listed of things that they believed in. It's like, oh, to be a Christian, they believed these seven things, and they believed it privately and quietly, and so let's call them Christians. No, the label Christian is only applied to those people who publicly could not stop talking about the hope and the joy and the authority that Jesus had in their lives. The label of Christian, being a Christian, I know it's like such a hard thing for people to talk about, like, I'm not a Christian, I'm a Jesus follower. We have all these cool names now. To be a Christian biblically, I'm just talking about in the Bible, and I know it's more complicated now, but in the Bible, to be a Christian is to be someone who talks about Jesus. That's what it is. And you might think, ah, is that okay today? Like, that sounds kind of rude. Like, it sounds rude to go out there into the world and be like, hey, you should believe this, right? That sounds rude. Like, you don't want people coming to you and telling you what you should believe. And we, like, we should all just be nice, and nobody should talk about what they believe. Unless a few people, they get to talk about what they believe, and we should all agree with it, right? Isn't it rude, Brad? Uh, isn't there a thing about some monk or some saint somewhere who said, your actions speak louder than words, and so... Let's just be really nice. And that's, that's what it means now to be a Christian. Uh, I have this real elaborate story for you that's completely made up. So imagine that the La Brea tar pits uh, erupt again. But instead of tar coming out of it, it's just sheets and sheets of gold. 
And the city of LA doesn't know what to do, like almost anything that comes about. And so they say, hey, if you go down there and you pick up the gold, it's yours. We don't know what to do with all of this gold. If you go over there and you pick it up, you can put it in your pocket, take it away, please help us out. And you just happen to be walking by the tar pits, you know, on your way to work or whatnot, and you see all this gold and you take some and you put it in your pocket. And you think, wow, this gold is awesome, you know? I should let my coworkers know about this. I should let my friends know about this. And so what you do is you go into the office and you, you're really nice to your coworkers. Like you bring them coffee, you leave them really encouraging notes. You go to your neighbor and you say, hey, can I take your trash out for you? You're so nice. But a week goes by and none of them have gone to go get gold from La Brea. And you're like, well, I've been nice. Why didn't they go get the gold? So you get a little bit more upset about this and you're like, I can't believe they haven't done this. So you decide to print off some little flyers that say gold, tar pits. And you put them on everybody's windshield and you shove them in their little mailboxes. And still, none of your friends, none of your coworkers have gone to go get the gold from the tar pits. You're like, look, I am being as nice as I can be and they're still not getting the gold. I'm, I'm, being, I'm being, I've told them, I gave them paperwork. They still haven't gotten it. You decide to get a megaphone, and you yell at people as they come in and out of uh, Whole Foods. Gold, tar pit, gold, tar pit. Still, nobody's getting it. Finally, you're so frustrated, especially at this one friend who desperately needs some gold in their life. It's obvious, you know. You sit them down and you say, look, I know you're in need. We all are. We've all seen the housing prices and the gas prices. I know you need this. I just want to tell you something for your good. I will go with you. If we go to the La Brea Tar Pits, there's gold for you. You just have to take it and put it in your pockets and you can spend it. And then now this person actually knows what is happening and they're amazed by it. And let me just tell you, none of that is rude, right? Is that, I mean, the megaphone thing was rude. The little post-it note thing is a little passive aggressive. But if we've come to believe and if we've come to be convicted that one died for all and one was raised for all, then there is nothing greater we can do. There's no greater way to love someone than to actually listen to them and to speak the truth in a way that they can understand. And that's what the church of Antioch did. They were compelled by love. That passage in 2 Corinthians, it goes on to talk about how they become ambassadors of reconciliation. That they are, that it's as if God has put us here with this message and this purpose, and God is making his appeal to the world through us. And so these people just believed and lived that way. Uh, and so to love someone is to ache and to give yourself to being faithful, to continually sharing the gospel. It's also uh, to love and to ache for other peoples is to give yourself to being fruitful, uh, thinking through how can I share this good news with them in a way that, un that makes sense to them, in a way that they would understand. How can I articulate the goodness of the news to their deepest longings and needs? And that's what happened in Antioch. The next thing that they did is that they were proactively generous. Uh, what happened is there was a, a, a man from Jerusalem, his name was Agabus, he came up to Antioch and he says that he stood up and he indicated uh, or he spoke by the power of the Holy Spirit that there would be a famine, 
that he predicted. And now there's a couple like strands of thought you can have on this. Uh, One is uh, God wired this guy Agabus with the brain and discernment and an ability to see what's happening with the crops all over the world and to say, by the power of the spirit that made him, he spoke up and he said, look, I think there's about to be a big famine and it's gonna be hard for the people in Judea. The other way to think about it, which is totally legit, The other way to think about it is this man Agabus is praying and he's listening to God and God lets him know that there's going to be a famine across the Roman Empire and it's going to be particularly bad for the people that live in Jerusalem. Either way, he uses the power of the Spirit to communicate a deep need that's about to come. And so each person hears this news that there's going to be a famine in the future and they decide then oh, we should start setting aside finances to care for people. They predetermined that they were going to be generous. Uh, some of the people, like just in extra biblical like accounts, they took, they were like, all right, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I'm going to work. The, Monday, the money I make on those days, I'm putting into a pot to give away when they have need. Other people decided, no, I'm just going to take this much money that I have right now. I'm going to put it aside. I'm going to live off, you know, 40% of my income until that famine comes, and I'm going to give the 60% away. The important part is that they decided long before there was need that they would be generous. And that's how generosity works. Generosity does not operate out of, well, oh, no, like, I've already spent all my money. I don't have any cash, which is like really great now because there is no cash, but it's like, oh no, when I have enough, maybe then I'll consider, and after I pay off my other things, we predetermine to buy things and to keep stuff for ourselves. We don't predetermine to be generous towards others, but that's what happened here, and Luke says that this happened in the reign of Claudius, uh, which was 41 to 54 AD. You didn't know you were coming to so much history, but now you know the ancient world, Uh, Outside of the Bible, we know that there's several successive bad harvests during his reign across the Roman Empire that produced intense scarcity in a few particular places. One was Rome, one was Athens, one was throughout Egypt, and one was in Judea and Jerusalem. And what had happened is the Romans had built this extensive network of trade and travel, and they were transporting food all over the place, kind of like today. And then there were several bad seasons of harvest across the empire, and the people that were dependent on the food to travel to them the most didn't get it. And so it's, it's crazy that what happened, though, uh, in Judea, the big famine was 54, or 45 to 48 AD, and the people of Jerusalem received what they needed, so much so that the church there was able to give and meet needs beyond themselves, to where if in Jerusalem, during those years, if you were hungry, you knew, I need to find those Christians who keep talking about Jesus, and they will feed me what I need, like they will give it to me. They predetermined to give. They decided long before, we're going to give and we're going to live off less. That is biblical generosity. It requires a forethought decision to meet other people's needs. The last thing that they did is they sent people. Uh, They were worshiping and fasting in chapter 13, and then they began to sense that God was wanting some of them to go somewhere else for a different work, And they depended on God and his strategy and his way to do things and not their own. 
And the people that they sent were instrumental, important folks. Like Barnabas was one of their first leaders because this church just kind of started and didn't have any leaders. And Barnabas moved up there and had all these cultural connections with them. He was a Cypriot, and they were all from Cyprus too. And he, he was a great encouragement. And he just kept telling disciples, you're doing a good job. You're doing a good job. I mean, he was so important. Uh, in the middle of his ministry, he's like, I need someone like, like Saul. He goes down to this desert town, recruits Saul to come and spend life with him. He was a person Jewish to the core. You might remember him from last week. He was a person who persecuted many, many people who'd been radically transformed in the gospel. And these two, it said, we're going to send them away. And I think that this, again, is great confidence that they have. It isn't a scarcity mentality. It's a belief, a belief that the mission of God is worth it, a belief that God loved them enough to care for them, that that there wasn't just a few gifts for the church to go around and so they needed to hoard some. They believed that God would give that church everything it needed to be faithful, so much so that they could send other people out. Uh, That's why, uh, and that's true for us too. That's why and how we're like, oh, we can multiply communities, even though we know that's gonna be sad and hard and there's gonna be times where like, there's not enough good people around for my group or, you know, like, who are these jokers that I've been left with, right? You would never, but Jeff would. Uh, No, and you're gonna be in those moments. It's like, oh no, it's because I'm convinced that one died for all and was raised to life Therefore, I can have, and I probably do have from that same God, what I need today. I think the powerful thing is that that happened from a place of worship, a place of dependence on the Holy Spirit, and that's how they, with great confidence, uh, laid hands and sent people out somewhere else. Uh, it's, I love that they were worshiping before and fasting before, and then they worshiped and they fasted a whole bunch more. I think what that shows me is that uh, often we go to whiteboards or we go to we spreadsheets or different things to strategize how is God going to work. But I think the, the true like force of the mission of God is people who are worshiping God and dependent and love him and adore him. And that's like the fuel that we actually need. Um, so those are the three things. They talked it. They talked. They spoke up about Jesus Uh, They gave uh, premeditated giving, like premeditated murder, but premeditated giving in the first degree, something like that. I don't know. I only watch Brooklyn Nine-Nine, so that's my level of law that I know. Uh, Then the third thing that they did is they sent some of their very best people because the mission was worth worth it. And I think that's a big list, and you're like probably overwhelmed by one or two or all three of those things. Like, how could they do that? Why would they send? Why would they talk? Why would they give generously? And you might for a second be like, okay, now's the time. I'm gonna go home, I'm gonna look at my budget, and I'm gonna give really well. Or I'm like, all right, I'm gonna finally talk to my dad or my brother or my friends, and I'm gonna tell them about Jesus. And you're gonna do it like, like you know, clenching your fists so ready to just go out there and do it. But I think it's important for us to know why And the reason why they were able to do all of those things, and it's because they had come to know and come to experience the lasting presence of God's love for them. They heard the words of truth and the grace spoken into their lives. 
They heard the words of freedom. They heard the words of hope. They heard the words of truth. They were hearers of the good news. They were hearers of Christ, hearers of the Messiah. And so they spoke. They had also received the gift of Jesus, the gift of eternal life, the gift of of God himself, which was also a predetermined, premeditated gift of generosity. From long ago, from, from eternity past, God decided, he determined, like that's the word in Ephesians 1, he determined before the foundations of the world that he would do everything required to bring us into Christ and to give us every spiritual blessing. They had received a premeditated gift, and so this generosity of fruits and figs and stuff, that was easy. They had also received the son who was sent to them. The, 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 the treasures of heaven and the unity that Jesus felt with the Father and the Son, he didn't consider that to be something way too above him, but instead he surrendered it and he came. It's as if the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit said, yes, we can send and die. We can give it all because we know there will be enough. And so having received the Son, they realized Jesus actually is worthy of all worship, that he is the promised one who came, and because he came for the joy set before him, I can also go and be sent and send other people for the joy set before them as well. And so now we get to come and we get to take communion uh, around those truths uh, to remember that you heard the words of life from Jesus, that that you heard them and you were brought into abundant life, You can also come and take communion and remember the gift you've received, the grace of God. And you can come and you can receive the son that was sent into this world by the Father. So let's come and let's take, let's talk to one another about uh, that remembrance. uh, And then we'll respond more in worship. Uh, Jesus, we are excited to come and remember... uh, that all of these things are true. We pray that we would know who you are and know what you've done and then live out of that. Um, God, I pray that we would be uh, people in the city known as Christians because of what we speak into the problems and the challenges of this world. Uh, God, I pray for us to be generous uh, long before the generosity is required. Uh, God, I pray for us to send people all over the world and not operate in a place of scarcity. You are so good. We have received so much from you. Uh, Thank you for this time of communion. Thank you for your body that was given, your blood that was shed, that brings us into this purpose. Uh, I pray that we would no longer live for ourselves, but live for you who died and rose again. Amen. Amen.